It's good to see you today, and I'd like to invite you to open up your Bibles with me to Job in the 38th chapter. You, uh, you may see the scripture reading listed in your program as Job 38, 39 through chapter 42, verse 6. Well, I'm not going to read all of that, <clears throat> but I would like to begin with Job chapter 38. And I'm going to read through chapter 39, verse 18. Now this uh, particular passage, God's continuing his revelation to Job. He is challenging Job. Uh, if he is so wise and understanding as to question God's judgment and how God created the world, how he rules the world, to, if Job is to assert his wisdom and his understanding... So that such a degree that he feels God is accountable to him and has to justify himself to him. Well, then God says to Job, basically, where were you when I created the world? And what do you know about these things? And he basically provokes Job to begin asking himself these same questions. And to reflect on just how much or how little he, Job, really does know. How much or how little wisdom he, Job, really does have. And he talks about the uh, inanimate things, the, uh, the things of creation, the material creation, material processes, but then he moves to the animals, and that's where we're going to pick it up in Job chapter 38, verse 39. He says to Job, he says, can you hunt the prey for the lion, or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their thicket? Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about? For lack of food. Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the does? Can you number the months that they fulfill? And do you know the time when they give birth, when they crouch, bring forth their offspring, and are delivered of their young? Their young ones become strong. They grow up in the open. They go out and do not return to them. Who's let the wild donkey go free? Who's loosed the bonds of the swift donkey? To whom I've given the arid plains for his home and the salt land for his dwelling place. He scorns the tumult of the city. He bears not the shouts of the driver. He ranges the mountains as his pasture and he searches after every green thing. Is the wild ox willing to serve you? Will he spend the night at your manger? Can you bind him with a furrow in the furrow with ropes? Or will he harrow the valleys after you? Will you depend on him because his strength is great? Will you leave to him your labor? Do you have faith in him that he will return your grain and gather it to your your threshing floor? The wings of the ostrich wave proudly, but are they the pinions and plumage of love? For she lays her eggs to the earth and lets them be warmed on the ground, forgetting that a foot may crush them and that the wild beast may trample them. She deals cruelly with her young, as if they were not hers, though her labor be in vain, yet she has no fear, because God has made her forget wisdom and given her no share in understanding. And when she rouses herself to flee, she laughs at the horse and his rider. Do you give the horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Do you make him leap like locusts? His majestic snorting is terrifying. His paws in the valley and exults in his strength. 
He goes out to meet the weapons. He laughs at fear and is not dismayed. He does not turn back from the sword. Upon him rattle the quiver, the flashing, the flashing spear, the javelin. With fierceness and rage, he swallows the ground. He cannot stand still at the sound of the trumpet. When the trumpet sounds, he says, aha, he smells the bottle from afar. The thunder of the captains and the shouting. And on and on and wonderfully on it goes. Let's pray together. Father, I ask you now to make the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts, acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, I've begun to read this passage to you, and, uh, but it's only beginning. Um, to the lion with its, with its instincts to hunt, to the raven who feeds its babies, to the mountain goats which calve their offspring on treacherous mountain ledges, the Lord will continue to take Job on a tour of other creatures. He takes Job on a tour of nine creatures altogether. And in case after case, as he does this, the Lord is underscoring at least one feature for each of these creatures. At least one. That one feature really representing all the amazing features of the creature to show how wisely and wonderfully he has made them. They're perfectly suited, each one, to the places he has given them to lead, live, to the circumstances which are theirs in their lives. Amazing. Since Diane and I uh, recently returned from the Cascade Mountains in Washington State, I'm going to focus, ask you to focus with me for a moment on the on the mountain goat, uh, along with our son Isaac, we hiked up a beautiful um, trail to a wonderful alpine lake called Lake Kolchak. And then after that, uh, we transversed the lake and then we began to make our way up, climb, climbing at this point up a boulder-strewn pass called Asgard Pass. It's about 2,400 feet vertical in height and three-quarters of a mile. It's very steep. And Asgard Passes has been described in the literature, it's described as infamous, it's described as grueling, it's described as hazardous, and that is where we found, that's where we found the mountain goats. Let's look at slide one. There you go. It says, hello, my name is Fluffy. How do mountain goats survive on the heights? God takes credit for it. Their feet consist of cloven hoofs that can hold onto tiny little cracks in rock. And on the bottom of those feet, those hoofs, each one is a special traction pad to help them climb without slipping. And when they do slip, he gave them dew claws on their lower legs or the back of the leg in order to help stop their slide. They have a dense undercoat of wool, as you would imagine, for a goat, but you notice in the, the beard, so to speak, on the mother goat, they also have a second outer coat. And it's an amazing coat. It's, it's not fur, it's hair, and it's comprised of hollow, long, hollow hairs. You know how in the summer you put on your quilted jackets with those air pockets because they help insulate you, along with maybe wool or uh, down inside of them? Well, that's exactly what God gave, gave them. They can withstand temperatures of 50 degrees below zero, they can withstand winds of almost 100 miles an hour. He gave these goats instincts to give birth to their young on mountain ledges. Let's have the next slide, if that's all right. 
Lesson number one, you can do it. Within hours of a baby mountain goat's birth, they have such strength and instinct that they begin to climb on rocky precipices. Isn't that amazing? Let's go to slide three. The message of this is, this is great, Mom, watch me. Soon they're daredevils. Moms, would you let your babies do this? And at some point, as a point of comparison for just how amazing just the mountain goat is, how do you compare? How do you, how do you measure it? Well, I thought maybe I'd show you how I was doing. Let's have slide four. Yeah, this is me. I'm on a ledge. Mr. Grumpus, exhausted, legs cramping, wishing I was home. And you know, you look at me there and uh, what were the other mountain goats thinking? Let's have slide four. They were thinking, go home, lowland boy, go home. You don't know what you're doing. Why are you even up here? They were taking bets on whether I'd make it down without needing a cortisone shot, which I did have to get. They were making bets about whether I'd crimp my knee. They were making all kinds, they were laughing at me. Because God didn't give me the skills. He didn't give me the instincts of a mountain goat. He didn't give me their agility, their anatomy, their covering for bad weather. The habitat where they frolic would kill me within days. I would die in Asgard Pass. And yet for them, that habitat and that creature are perfectly suited for each other. It all actually makes sense. The world actually is in order. You find this among all God's creatures. The Lord points Job to wild donkeys made in, the wilder, uh, who, in their wildernesses that uh, he places them in, the wild do- ox always rebelling against man. And for comic relief, you heard me read it, for comic relief he refers to the dull-witted ostrich who lays its eggs and then goes off and leaves them? Is she an example of design by committee? Here's a bird full of plumage and yet the female at, at, at uh, maturity weighs between 220 and 300 pounds. She cannot f- fly to save herself. But thinking about saving herself, and the text points it up, when she's frightened and when she's threatened, she can run harder than a horse. 30 miles an hour for up to 10, for up to 10 miles. God showcases the mighty warhorse and the soaring hawk that knows to migrate south. The text refers to that. He spots the eagle who nests on high cliffs far removed from predators and prey. And yet with such uncanny vision, the eagle can see a rabbit two miles away. You and I marvel at this. Do you know how many light-sensitive cells are in one tiny square millimeter of your retina, 200,000. But do you know how many light cells are in a square millimeter of the eagle? One million. And I'd ask you, how many generations? 
How many mutations, which are genetic accidents, how many eons of time do you think it took for a sightless, ancestral, water-bound, one-celled organism to evolve into an airborne eagle with eyes that comprise 50% of its head with a million light-sensitive cells per square millimeter, able to see five basic colors compared with what we call our three basic colors, with a strong hollow bone skeleton that minimizes its weight so it can actually stay aloft and fly for hours without flapping its wings once. How long do you think that took? God takes full credit for creating the eagle. And I want to say very honestly today, I think for those who minimize God, and the necessity for God in creation. And how evident his divine wisdom and understanding are in their design and in the instincts of the creatures. For those who would cling to a material explanation for how any of us came to be, God has one question. Were you there? Were you there? And one of the things you notice about these animals as I read about them and I've spoken about, is that the animals he selects, you know, there is an untamable wildness about each of these creatures that God selects. That's wildness in relation to you and in relation to me, beyond our control, really beyond our efforts to control. And most of those animals, the only way we can see them up close is if we have them behind bars. But God doesn't put them behind bars. Their wildness to us is not wildness to him. Their wildness toward us is God's, part of God's rule over them. He delights in them just as they are. They do not frighten him. They are not running wild for him. He identifies with their wildness. Let me tell you honestly, God is wild. Think about how he... He relates them. Think about how he revealed himself to Job from out of the midst of the whirlwind. And what does Nahum say? Nahum says, God, this is the way God reveals himself from the midst of the storm, from the midst of the whirlwind, which is as much to say, I am wild. You cannot tame me with your attempts to limit me, your efforts to control what I do, your demands that I justify myself to you, to meet with your approval. You cannot do that. I am wild. I am God. But here's the greater point. The point from which this point of wildness is then placed. What is true for the creatures is, of course, true for God. Their wildness is not recklessness. In that wildness, there is still purpose. It is purposeful. It's not pointless. God's wisdom is very much at work. And the world is in order for good. Good as God has purposed. Good as conforms with the excellencies of who God is. Whether we see it at the time or not. God is God. And Job is undone by what God has shown him. 
the Lord's wisdom and, and, uh, and, and, and understanding here are on display from the vastness and the order of the whole universe as we saw last week down to the, down to the, the retina of the eagle and the instincts he's given to the mountain goat. Yet Job had missed it. The wonder of this creation, the wonder of the world, he had missed it. Because in his rush to live life, and we're like this, in our rush to live life, pretty much on our terms, surrounded by things that human beings have built, we miss or dismiss the signposts that God has placed throughout this entire created order to draw our attention to him. The fact that he is glorious, that he's splendid, that, he's, that he is majestic. And these signposts he placed everywhere in the creation throughout his creatures are there for us to know him, to steady us and to reassure us in the chaos that we know in our lives, what we experience, the ordeals of our life. And to, they're there then to defeat the argument inherent in every evil that we're subjected to. The argument of evil when faced with evil, that God is nothing. Or that God overlooks us like we overlook, like we overlook the mountain goats. But He is not nothing. And He is not us. He is God. So Job says, To God in chapter 40, verse 4, Behold, I'm a small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Well, it seems that Job has really learned a wonderful lesson. He's made far too much of his own wisdom, of his own understanding, and now he has humbled himself. And what I mean by humbled himself, I'll make one aspect of this in particular. He has humbled his mind. He has humbled his thinking before God. And he is ready to learn. And the Lord has more to teach him. The Lord has yet to close the loop of understanding. To close the loop, full circle of understanding on Job's terrible ordeal. And that is a loop that must be closed. Well, how does he do that? Well, among the wild things that are subject to God's rule are wild things that are evil, that are evil or that, that absolutely terrify, terrify us. Wild things. I mean, they can be spiritual forces, they can be disease, they can be cancer, crazy cells multiplying out of control, they can be people. Among the wild things who are proud and cruel and defiant and powerful. Wild things can be those ordeals of life that you and I face. They often involve elements of natural things. So how does does God convey this? That these wild things, all wild things, are under his rule that they are subject to him, that he's still God over all, and that his good purposes will prevail. How does he convey that to Job as he suffers? Well, in chapter 40, 
he responds to Job. He's moving on now. There's another part of this discourse. He says to Job, have you an arm like God? Can you thunder with a voice like his? Do you have the authority that I have? Do you have my authority? Do you know my majesty? Do you see my splendor? That when I speak, it must be done. Even the most terrifying to you must cringe before me. And he promises in that early part of chapter chapter 40, verses 10 to 14, he promises that he does what he does to the end, that he will bring down whatever exalts itself against the knowledge of him and lifts up the humble. And to show him that, God points out two of the mightiest and most terrifying creatures. He begins in verse 15. Behold, behemoth, which I made as I made you. Now that's very important. Behold, behemoth, which I made as I made you. God is referring to a real creature. He's not referring to some mythological concept here. He says to this creature, he eats grass like an ox in verse 15. His power in the muscles are in the muscles of his belly in verse 16. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar. You know, the cedars of Lebanon, those rock hard, strong, long, great trees. His limbs are like bars of iron. He lies in the shelter of the reeds in the marsh, verse 21. He is confident Though the Jordan rushes against his mouth, he is untamable. Verse 24. Behemoth. Now, what is this behemoth? Someone suggested that behemoth is a, somebody in the 17th century, 1600, suggested that behemoth was a hippopotamus. Water horse, literally in Greek. Some have suggested that, that behemoth is an elephant. But the thing about the hippopotamus and the elephant is that they just do not have tails like mighty cedars of Lebanon. Their tails are pretty small. And the elephant surely can be tamed and has been tamed. We just have to admit the fact that you and I have never seen a creature like this. Yet God insists that he's, he's made it. So we're really left with one of three possibilities. Either, either this creature is some mythical creature and God's sort of pulling one over on Job and Job is expected to politely say, oh yes, I see that's terrifying when no, it's made up. Or uh, this is an exaggeration of a creature that existed. So it's kind of a projection an extrapolation of a creature that exists, but it's, again, it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. Or it is a real creature that we've never seen. I think the creatures that best fit this description are from among the dinosaurs. Dinosaur, from Latin, meaning terrible lizard, and they included massive plant-eating amphibious creatures dwelling in watery places with huge tails, great mighty limbs, firm 
enormous bellies. Here, here's a fossilized, slide six, a fossilized view of an exhibit of an apatosaurus. It's an amazing creature. And then, let's have the next slide. Here's the artist's rendering of what that creature looked like. Now I think we're beginning to talk about behemoth. And if this is the sort of creature that God was pointing out, if our apatosaurus was his behemoth, why not? They existed. He made them. But you might think as I say this, that not a single apatosaurus that had been alive for millions of years before Job. Are you sure? I mean, were you there? Do you know that? But the most terrifying creature was Leviathan in verse 41. God goes on and talks about Leviathan the first, uh, the most. Verse 7 says he's impervious to the harpoon or the spear. His huge gaping mouth is described as the doors of his face. His teeth are said to be surrounded by in the midst of terror. Verse 14. His back is a row of shields that are inseparably welded together. Verses 15 to 17. He raises himself up only to come crashing down in verse 25. In the water he can make the sea appear to boil and foam. He leaves a wake of white water behind him in verses 31 to 32. And when he drags himself over the mud, he scars it, he scores it, the mire that's beneath him, just like a threshing sledge would score the soil on a threshing floor, in verse 30. Leviticus is a creature. God's claiming this is a creature that I've made. So many assume that Leviticus, or that, I'm sorry, the Leviathan, not Leviticus, the Leviathan is a crocodile, like the great Nile crocodile. One of the issues with that is the ancient petroglyphs, inscriptions in stone, portray these crocodiles as being harpooned and killed or taken, or taken captive. This is a more terrifying than a crocodile. Again, I think back to the terrible lizards. There's a lizard called the sarcosuchus, the car, sarco, sorry, let me try this again. The sarcosuchus imperator. Let me show you a fossilized exhibit in slide eight. There he is. You see him? He's really long. In fact, he's almost 40 feet long. Here's the same creature with an artist's rendering of its head and its face. There you go. Back in verse 2 of chapter 41, God asked Job, can you put a rope in his nose? For scale, to understand, have an idea how large this creature was, Let's have slide 10. This is a man beside the doors of his fossilized face. Now, this was a Leviathan. I mean, do I know this was the Leviathan? No, but this far better fits the description than anything else I know, anything I know in the world today. What a big mouth you have. 
That's the caption. But the text says more about Leviathan. It says his sneezings flash forth light. Out of his mouth go flaming torches. Sparks of fire leap forth. Out of his nostrils come forth smoke as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. His breath kindles coals. Flames come forth from his mouth. For four verses, 18, 19, 20, 21, that chapter, he talks about this feature of this creature far more than any others. You say, oh, this is just a mythological dragon. Well, actually, no. One thing, he's not winged. He doesn't fly. But unless you interpret these words as mere figures of speech, just words to convey fright or fear, or unless you interpret these words for how perhaps sunlight reflects on water as he spewed it from his mouth or the vapor they blow through his nose. The text seven times makes seven references to this idea that he creates fire. Now, some of you may be thinking about this. You say, well, look, Kurt, if you expect me to think this way, if you actually expect me to give this a serious consideration, I'm going to lose credibility. And I don't want to lose credibility in the world where I live. And I want to say to you, I think if we're not willing to take this seriously and consider it and weigh it carefully, we lose credibility. You say, well, how can that be? How could that possibly be? Well, I'll tell you a little story that kind of illustrates the way I think. And some of you may say afterward, boy, I'm glad he's gone. No, <laughs> But several years ago, my brother-in-law came to my house in the, during the summer. It was early July, and he went outside one night, and then he came rushing back in. He was all enthralled. He'd seen something for the first time that he had never seen before and had never imagined existed. <laughs> Lightning bugs. Can you believe that? Fireflies. He was enchanted. I mean, how can that happen? And we could talk about luciferon and luciferase, the enzyme and the chemical that, the enzyme that breaks down this chemical and that causes photoluminescence. We could talk about all that stuff. But look, let me just get the cookies on the low shelf. I look at it this way. That if God can make a bug with a light bulb for a rear end, he can make a lizard that belches fire out of his mouth. You see, the way I look at it is this. Who am I? Do I know all things? Do I know better than God? Who am I in the world? Who am I compared with him? I'm not asking you to accept everything I'm saying today and agree with it. But I'm talking about submitting our minds to God and to his word in all things. And fearlessly so. With no shame or apprehension. And when God tells us in his word crazy things, like he has raised the dead, he has taken a rotting corpse and in 
enlivened it again. Words fail me to describe it. And raised that person who was alive from the dead like a Lazarus. Or what of a Jesus? The Jesus. Who am I? Who am I to doubt him? Drawing attention to this amazing Leviathan, God says in verses 10 and 11 of chapter 41, who then is he who can stand before me? In other words, to question me. Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. You hear that? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. God is speaking here about real creatures. God was humbling Job. Not by unreal things that we might imagine, but by the creatures he has made. And Job gets it. This is a real humbling. Job is, Job is not just being polite to act humble because even though this doesn't really carry a lot of weight, he's going to be humble because God said it. No, no. He is truly humbled. He gets it. And earlier he had confessed that he had had too high a view of himself, of his wisdom and understanding. But now as God has revealed this to him, how he rules over what terrifies us, what may be unimaginably terrifying to us. The loop is getting closed and Job realizes that just as he'd had too high a view of his own wisdom and his own understanding, he'd had too low a view of God's wisdom, God's understanding, God's prerogatives, God's power. The untamable God. We cannot contain what he is or what he does within the grasp of our minds. But we know this. We know that he is purposeful. And we know that his purposes are consistent with his excellence. And by his excellence, we're talking about his majesty, his authority, his dignity, his glory, his splendor. These are words he uses of himself throughout this passage. He's worthy of our wonder. He is not arbitrary. He does what he does to bring the proud low and to lift up the humble. He says to Job that he's near the brokenhearted, that he redeems those who turn to him, who turn to him and they turn to him because he is who he is. And this surely is the message and the conclusion of Job. He's a God who lifts up the humble when God restores to him double all that he had lost. But that is nothing compared with what we know lies ahead for us. There will be an age when the wolf will lie down with the lamb and the lion will eat straw like an ox and the earth shall be full of the knowledge of God as the waters cover the seas. But until that day, The Lord revealed to Job what he needed in order to rest secure in God until the Redeemer comes. And for us, hallelujah, he has come. Let's pray. Father, we do love you. We thank you for this passage of your word. We thank you for the way it deeply challenges us. I mean, this is all about challenging Job's assumption, man's assumptions about himself, about you, about who you are. 
And I pray that you would help us take it very much to heart, even as we segue now from the, uh, from the mighty behemoth and the Leviathan to your own son, Father, the Lamb of God. Amen.